Uh, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? You can find it in your bulletins. Um, today's reading comes from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Where, we're, where we were last week, we were in Matthew 20, and, and Pastor Casey showed us uh, true greatness in Jesus' words. And it's, it's kind of upside down because he says the true greatness comes not through strength and power, but it comes through humility and through childlike faith. And in the same way, what we're going to see in Matthew 17, even though we're, we're going back a bit because we had a snow day two weeks ago, I've just been carrying this sermon in my back pocket for two weeks. Uh, but we're going back to Matthew 17 and looking at the transfiguration, which we just read about, and power, how Jesus's power confronts and subverts the power of our world. Now, every one of us, I'm sure, has been affected by somebody else's power in a negative way. Every one of us has been hurt by somebody's use and, and misuse of power. We can all think of, of examples in our world of power gone wrong. So often what happens is, uh, say, you take politics, for example, somebody on the Republican side misuses power, and so the Democrats say, well, that's why you should be a Democrat. We don't have that sort of thing. And then they have an abuse of power and the Republicans say the same thing about them. And so really it's just on both sides and everywhere in between, there's a, a misuse of power. And then in the older companies, they paid low wages and all these newer, younger companies that are super hip were like, we're not like those older companies. We don't abuse our power. They just record all of our conversations and take pictures of our face to use it for later. So there's a misuse of power on both sides. And unfortunately, we see this even in the church world as well. So in, in sort of the church news over the last few years, and even the last few weeks, we've getting, gotten these reports of, of misuse of power, abuse of power, and it's coming from every tradition, every denomination, every network. And so it's not like the Protestants can say, well, that's the Catholics issue, or the Catholics can say that's the Protestants issue. And the Pre Presbyterians and the Baptists, every, every group, I mean, it's now across the board. Every group has had a massive scandal or failure. And, and what that shows us is that every single social group on earth has the capacity to misuse power, has the capacity to abuse power. And I know that that's true because I know my own heart. And when I, when I look at my own heart, I see the exact same potential for, for every sin that's out there in the world. I can see it in, inside of me, at least in seed form. And if we're honest, we, we might be a lot more subtle, but we still struggle with the same kind of power hunger as everybody else. We're more creative about it. We're more subtle about it. So we, we might one-up one another. 
Yeah, we've talked about this before. There's a comedian that talks about the me monster. So every time somebody talks, he's like one-upping them. So he's like, you, here's me. Here's you, here's me. Here's you, here's me. We, we're trying to one-up one another just to gain a, an element of power over somebody else. Or maybe we're presenting a certain side of ourselves to, to look as good as possible. And so we'll post something on social media that says, I'm so blessed. Look at my friends, you know, these super popular people. Aren't you sort of a little bit jealous maybe that I'm hanging out with them and you're not? Or I just got this great job. I'm so blessed. The Lord has blessed me. It's, it's such an opportunity to, to work over these hundreds of commoners and, and I'm going to bless them with, with the leadership of, of the Lord. And so the, the humble brag is, is something we've become familiar with. Even in, in saying uh, something that sounds humble on the surface, there's really an element of pride underneath it. And I think all of these things, they're, they're rooted in sort of a search for acceptance and belonging. But so often we, we have those things. We have a group that we are accepted by. We have complete belonging, and yet we still find ourselves searching and grabbing for more power. And so in our churches, in our marriages, among our children, in almost every sphere of life, we're tempted to, to accumulate power and, and use it in a wrong way. And so the question becomes, what, what do we do? Do we avoid power so that we might not misuse it? So just remove ourselves from any potential for power and authority and responsibility so that we won't misuse it and nobody can say that we've misused it? Or do we try to accumulate as much power as possible and, and at least try to use it better than other people, even if we get it wrong occasionally? Or as always, could it be that there's a totally different way? Could it be that Jesus's vision for power, his, his idea of power is totally different from everything the world has to offer us, everything the world is putting before us? Jesus' power is, is true power. It's eternal, divine power. And it totally confronts and subverts the power of our world. And so the transfiguration, this, this powerful moment in Jesus' life, there's, there's nothing else like it. It's one of the events that's in all four of the Gospels, and many of the other New Testament letters point back to it because it is so significant. It's, it's a display of true, eternal, divine power in a world that's power-hungry. And so it's into this dark world that the light of Jesus shines for just a moment. And every time this happens in Scripture, it happens in a few other places, God's presence appears in all of its glory before somebody, and they are just floored. In the same way that Peter, James, and John just are immediately, they hit the floor as soon as Jesus is illuminated and the Father speaks. So I thought about naming this talk, Bodies Hit the Floor, and then I realized that's a heavy metal song, so I couldn't do that. But every time God's presence appears, bodies hit the floor. What we're going to look at today is the source of true power, the subversiveness of that power, and then how we respond to God's power. So look at verse 1 again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. If we were in the first century and we had all of the knowledge that Peter, James, and John and the other first century Israelites had, we would understand that this is pointing them back to the Old Testament. There were two major displays of God's glory and power in the Old Testament, personal displays. They're called 
theophanies, where God's presence is, is manifest in a visible way to somebody. And in Exodus 34, the first one, Moses is called up the mountain. He's called up this holy Mount Sinai with three companions, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So if you're looking for a boy name that's not claimed, Abihu is available. So three companions, and then after six days, just like our text, God speaks to Moses, and he is totally floored. The other great appearance of God's glory is in 1 Kings 19, and it's Elijah. And Elijah climbs Mount Horeb and waits on the Lord. And finally, God appears first in a wind that it says destroyed the mountain, and then in a hurricane, and then in a fire, and then in a still soft voice. And it says that Elijah covered his mouth and covered his face in the presence of God. And so it's, it's interesting that the two most personal appearances of God in all of his glory in the Old Testament, they're to Moses and Elijah, and those are the two figures that are here on the mountain with Jesus. And what I believe God is trying to show us is the continuity of God's power and his glory throughout all of time, that the same powerful God that was ministering to Moses and to Elijah is now ministering to the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the truest and, and fullest display of God's glory. It's God's full power, full glory on for full display. And as I said, every time God appears, people are totally floored. In the same way Job fell on the ground when God came to him in a hurricane, Isaiah said, woe is me and collapsed on the ground. And even though these disciples immediately hit the floor in fear and in worship, they're not, they're not rebuked. They're not, uh, they're not condemned. They're not, uh, they're not told to repent. It's interesting, they're, they're transformed by it, but they don't, they don't get consumed by the presence of God. And we'll see why that is in, in just a moment. But every time the presence and glory of God appears, it's simply too much for us. We recognize the gap between God's perfection and our need, our lack, our sin. And every time God's presence appeared on a consistent basis in the Old Testament, God actually had to protect us from his presence. So first, when Israel was in the wilderness, if you remember, there was this glory cloud. So after they were led through the sea, this, this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night protected them. And God's presence was in this glory cloud. And other people could see it. It said that the nations could see it. And because they were afraid of it, they didn't attack Israel in the wilderness. So God's presence was sort of contained in a way that it wouldn't consume people in the glory cloud. As they were traveling in Exodus, God gives the people, God gives Moses these elaborate instructions for building a tabernacle, which was like a large movable tent or shelter that could house the glory of God. The very last chapter of Exodus is God literally coming down and filling the tabernacle with his presence. As soon as it was done being built, he fills it with his presence and the whole place shakes. Later on, David and Solomon want to create a permanent home for the Lord. Once they're in Jerusalem, David has the idea, Solomon finishes it, but they create the temple, which is kind of the crowning moment in Israel's history. And what the temple is, is a permanent place for God's power and glory to dwell in a way that doesn't destroy us. And so they create this holy of holies within the temple, surrounded by this thick curtain that was as thick as a couple of walls. They didn't have drywall back then, so literally it's a, it's a several foot thick curtain that would protect people from the presence of God. The only way we could directly enter the presence of God for most of human history 
was in a very, very specific, small way. Only one high priest could enter that Holy of Holies, and he could only do it one time a year to make a sacrifice. They would literally tie a rope around his ankle with bells on it so that if he was killed in the presence of God, they would hear the bells stop jingling and pull out the body. We can forget how much God's power and glory is, is absolutely overwhelming. That every time God's presence is among us in fullness, we simply cannot handle it. So what is it that changed from all of this history in the Old Testament to now? Well, I want to look at Peter's suggestion here because it, it shows us a couple interesting things in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, if that sounds like an odd and ridiculous statement, it is. Last time we saw Peter, just six days ago in the book of Matthew, he was pulling Jesus aside to rebuke him. And of course, he got the, the grand rebuke. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's just been made the head of the church. He tries to pull Jesus away from the cross, and it's a total failure. So I imagine over the last six days, Peter's like, I'm going to get this right next time. I've got to prove myself to Jesus and the other disciples. Last time I went negative. This time I'm going all positive. I'm listening to all the podcasts, watching all the daily talk shows. No matter what, I'm going super positive. So Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah is there. The fact that he's even speaking at all in the midst of the transfiguration is ridiculous. Mark's gospel actually has a sentence in it that says, Peter did not know what he was talking about. Like the other disciples wanted for all history, the church just to know Peter was just always doing stuff like this. So Peter says, if you wish, I will put up three shelters. Now what he is describing, that word shelter, it can be, it can be translated tent. In the Hebrew, it's the word tabernacle. What Peter was aware of is that Jesus, if he remained transfigured like this, would crush them with his presence. Now, why he wanted to do that for Moses and Elijah isn't really clear. They weren't sticking around for long. But it's in the midst of Peter speaking all this, once again, trying to keep Jesus just in his glorious state and away from the cross. Peter's always trying to keep Jesus from the cross. In the middle of speaking, look at verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said. So the father comes in and just totally cuts off Peter. He's like, you're done talking. Here's what I have to say. And he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. There are only two times like this where the father speaks audibly in the gospels where everybody can hear it. It's here and in the baptism of Jesus, which we looked at a couple of months ago. And it's the exact same phrase, word for word. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And this time he adds, maybe just for Peter, listen to him. Like this is the one you should be listening to. Stop talking and listen to Jesus. And I think what Peter hasn't learned yet is something that takes us as Christians a really long time to learn, which is that God is not just interested in us doing stuff for him. God is not telling us, Jesus is not telling us, you need to get busy for me, doing activities for me, service for me. You need to just be in my presence and just listen. You can just be there. You don't have to be so active. 
The first task of being a disciple of Jesus and certainly a leader of others in the church is to listen to Jesus. It's not to speak, it's to listen. And so we see Jesus as the source of all true power, the fullness of God in human form, the God-man. And compared to the world's idea of power, this true power flips everything on its head. And so that's the second thing, the subversiveness of true power. And I know subversiveness is not technically a word. It was either that or subversivity. Uh, If you just right-click, you can add it to the dictionary, and you don't have to worry about it again. Verse 6 again, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the verse this week that is, has just floored me the most. I'd never really seen it in this passage until, until studying it, or well, a couple weeks ago, studying it for the first time. I think this is one of the most profound and, and beautiful gospel moments in the gospels. A, a moment of, of announcing the good news and, and sort of illustrating the good news. Because here's Jesus in all of his power, all of his glory, all of his fullness, stooping down to lift up man say, it's okay, trust me, and then putting them back together. Jesus comes down, he bends over, reaches down, touches us even, and says, it's going to be okay. And so that question, how do these guys experience the fullness of the glory of God and not get consumed? I think the key is right there in the text, that when they come to themselves, Jesus is all they can see. Jesus is the only protection that we need in the presence of God. We don't need the temple. We don't need the tabernacle. We don't need the veil, the curtain. All we need to be in the presence of God and the fullness of God is Jesus Christ. So when they come to themselves, he's all they can see. And this is Jesus's mission to to set aside the the privileges and the, the eternal perks of being God himself as the son and to come into our world, our broken world, to go directly to where the pain is to go directly into the darkness so that he might lift us up off the ground and invite us to trust in him. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And so once again, he's pointing them to his coming death. Pretty much every scene from here until the cross, Jesus is reminding them, I'm going to die for you. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you on a cross. After three days, I will rise again. And even still, they keep doing all this ridiculous stuff, asking him who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. He has set his face on Jerusalem, going directly toward the pain. So it's this subtle beauty that the same Jesus that's so glorious that they get knocked to their feet now lifts them back up and walks with them, answers their questions, talks to them, the same Jesus. And I think this shows us something about Jesus' power, that it's, it's power, but it's also power infused with vulnerability. Vulnerability meaning willingness to take on pain, willingness to step into the hard places and expose themselves to pain. So often we don't think power and vulnerability could, could possibly go together. There's a great book by a writer named Andy Crouch, uh, Strong and Weak, and he talks about power without vulnerability and vulnerability without power. So think about power with no vulnerability whatsoever. 
And this is somebody who is only trying to accumulate more and more power for themselves. They don't care how it affects other people. They want as much power as possible. They're going to lord it over people. They're going to do anything they can to defend themselves. You know, people that will defend themselves to the death, like they'll go to the grave with a white knuckled defense of themselves. Even though they know they're wrong, they just can't let it go. They will do anything to hold on to their power and not expose themselves to pain. That's power without vulnerability. On the other side, though, vulnerability without power is not a great answer either. To always be just subjecting ourselves to pain and suffering, letting others abuse us, take advantage of us, always going the extra mile for somebody just so they will hurt us, that's not God's vision of power either. Trying to think of an example of vulnerability without power, I thought of the, you know, the show Parks and Rec, the character Jerry. Jerry, Gary, Larry, his name keeps changing. He's always going out of his way to help people, and it never works out for him. And I think a lot of people think of Christianity like Jerry. They think that it's constantly just exposing yourself to humiliation, constantly being embarrassed, and just generally not having it together. But that's just vulnerability without any power, and that's not the Christian view either. What Jesus shows us is that power and vulnerability go together, especially if it's Christ's power within us. It's not about our power, it's about Christ's power flowing through us. Every time Jesus uses power, there's a display of his power. It's not just for himself, it's for others. When God thunders down over Jesus, it's not just for himself, it's for others to understand the love that exists within God himself. It's a display of love. When Jesus is illuminated here, it's, it's not just to, to knock them down, but it's to pick them back up and invite them to trust in him. Every time Jesus uses, uses his power in the scriptures, it's to lift somebody up, to elevate them, to put them back together, to find somebody who's marginalized or less than or removed from society and to restore them. Every time power is used by Christ, it's to serve others and elevate others. And so what does this mean for us today? That's the third thing, our response to this true power. And the first thing I want us to, to consider is to follow Jesus in his power. How do, how do we follow Jesus in his power? When we find ourselves with some authority, whether it's at work, in a relationship, authority with our children, what do we do with that authority? How do we handle that power? And Andy Crouch's definition of power, I think, is really helpful. He says, power is the capacity for meaningful action. Power is just the capacity to be able to do something good in the lives of others. That's what power is in general. So anytime we have power, we have authority in any capacity. It's always given to us from someone else. And a lot of times it's very temporary and it can be taken away from us as well. And if we think about it as the power or the capacity for meaningful action in the lives of others, then we can do so much good with it. When we can combine Christ's power in us with vulnerability, that's what allows us to help those who are in need, somebody who's below us, somebody who doesn't have all the resources or, or the benefits or the privileges that we do. We can follow Christ in his pattern of using power to elevate and bless others. When I was thinking about it uh, yesterday, what struck me is how much this church embodies this principle. How many of you have, have laid aside opportunities for advancement at work or more 
money or more security and independence in your life so that you can serve other people. Whether it's raising children, uh, creating space at work for others to find meaning and, and belonging. Maybe it's raising foster children, teaching at-risk kids, working with refugees. The, the capacity for meaningful action in this room is, is incredible. And every week I get to see you guys laying down your privileges, laying down things that are easy so that you might step into something difficult. I often quote Mother Teresa and she said, always choose the hardest thing. And that was advice and almost her advice in any situation was choose the hardest thing and it'll probably lead you to what's right. And I see you guys doing this week in and week out. And it's such a good display to the world that this is what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus looks like in authority. He doesn't cling to it. He doesn't use it over others. He doesn't abuse it, but he leverages it to serve the less fortunate. He's always stooping down to lift us up. And then the second thing, the first thing is follow Jesus and his power. The very last thing is to trust Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus is 100% focused on the cross. Everything is moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards the darkness, moving towards the pain, moving towards the cross. And remember that for most of human history, we've always been held at a distance from the fullness of God's presence. We've always been protected from God's presence. We were protected by the glory cloud in the sky. We were protected by the tabernacle. We were protected by the temple. We were protected by this thick curtain. And if Jesus never goes to the cross, the best we can ever do is worship from the outer courts of a temple. The best we can ever do is continually offer sacrifices again and again and again, year in and year out, trying to make atonement for our sins. That's the absolute best we can do. It's no more, really, than any other religion. We can't draw near to God. We can't be entirely forgiven by God. We will always be, sacri we will always be separated and making sacrifices. And I know this is jumping to the end, but Matthew 27 at the end of the story, or near the end, I should say, Jesus is on the cross. Verse 50 says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus breathed his last and he gave up his body, this thick curtain that had protected people from the presence of God was torn completely from top to bottom. What existed to protect us from the fullness of God's power and glory had suddenly been ripped open as Christ breathed his last so that the power and the presence of God could come fully into our lives, could, could dwell among us, could even be entering into our own hearts through the Holy Spirit. No more do we need protection from the glory of God. Christ is all the protection that we need in the presence of our God. And this is what's so important when it comes to power. If we don't trust Jesus and his sacrifice, if we think that it all depends on us, we have to defend ourselves, we have to secure our future, we'll always misuse power. If we don't trust that Christ is enough from a, for us, that we are secure in him, we will always be, be reaching for more power and quick to misuse power. But if we are completely secure in Christ, then power becomes something that can, can flow through us to serve other people. 
And so follow him in his power, trust him in his sacrifice. The curtain has been torn in two. The fullness of the power and the glory of God is now among us. Let's pray.